Would you join me this morning in two passages of scripture, the first being Proverbs chapter 15, and I want to read verses 31 and 32. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31. He whose ears listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And then if you would just go one book to the right to the Song of Solomon. Actually, it might be two books to the right. Song of Solomon should be right after Ecclesiastes, I believe. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And I want to read preferably the first four verses. Song of Solomon, chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. The song of songs which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Amen. You may be seated. You would have had to have been a teenager as I was in the mid-70s, somewhere around 75 and 76. We were introduced to uh, what might be described as the Luther Vandross of that time. His name was Peebo Bryson. And people stormed on the scene with a rather familiar and soothing R&B classic, I'm So Into You. And I was a young man trying to woo every young girl I could find. So I learned all of Peebo Bryson's music and you would have thought that I thought that I was Peebo Bryson trying to run that game on young ladies at the time. But I'm So Into You is a classic. It's a classic because it's a very romantic ballad and it speaks such volumes about an individual who is so into the life of the person that has now come to occupy their space of love that they say some very crazy things like, I'm so into you, don't know what I'm going to do. Because you care for me, you care so much for me. Hold tight, girl, you got me in it, though, even though it's wrong or right. The world can't stop me. Just, just lyrics that just kind of drive you crazy. And I... I uh, I, I remember one line that says, love will heal a broken heart yesterday. I'm so in love to you, in love with you. I don't know what I'm going to do. I am yours. You are mine. I'm so glad I found you. Good God Almighty. That thing just, it was just exciting back in the day. So when I start reading the Song of Solomon, I started thinking about the old ballads, and I don't know, I got stuck on Peebo Bryson's I'm So Into You, because the book itself sort of reflects that kind of theme. 
it tells the story uh, about a man who has found the love of his life and he is so into her that he wants to share all of the close intimate details that he can to reflect his love for this young lady. Now there may be much if you look at scholarship in terms of the history of of the Song of Solomon, there, there are lots of suggestions that Solomon very well may not have been the author of the entire book. In fact, it's really not a book. It's really nothing more than a compilation of love poems. And there are some who suggest that Solomon certainly would not be the best candidate to suggest that he would be a good example of what it means to be in love. When you go back and read I think it's either 1 Kings or 2 Kings 11, and it's around verse 2 where it tells you that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm not very certain that he's the perfect example to suggest to take any advice from about being in love with anybody. But nonetheless, if you read chapter 3, verse 7, 9, and 11, there is a suggestion that at least Solomon has some contribution to the making of this book. If you go a little bit further and begin to read in some of the other chapters, there's a strong suggestion, uh, particularly in verse 5 of chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8, that he may not be the writer or he may not be the writer completely of the entire book, which is what I strongly believe, that he has some contribution but maybe not all. But what my attempt is is to sort of take us through a journey through the Song of Solomon because rarely do you hear any sermons from Solomon because many preachers feel that the language here is too erotic, it's too personal, it sort of digs too deep into an area that people really don't like to share. And what I wanna to try to do is sort of peel back some of that onion and help you understand that the eroticism of the language is not a bad thing. In fact, again, it's just nothing more than an expression of someone who is sharing what it means to be involved in a very deep, caring relationship. So what I'm hoping to do is to be able to address the single person who may be now involved in some level of relationship with somebody and hopefully I can help you understand what some things you might want to look for if you're considering taking that relationship at some point in time to the next level. Maybe, likewise, I'm hoping that if you are engaged, you're already at that level where you've decided that you wanted to consider future marriage and now you've made a commitment to each other, what I hope is to be able for, for you to be able to see that even while being engaged, there are still some things that you need to make sure that the other person is actually living out. And this may be for those who also are newly married or seasoned in marriage. You may have been at this for a long time or you may have recently been married for the last one, two, three years. Hopefully you can find something out of this series of lessons that would help us see the importance of understanding what it means to be in love with someone else. There's also the suggestion that the book is really not a story, but that the book maybe more of a metaphorical picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That could very well be a venue to explore, uh, but I wanna contend that's not really the holistic nature of the book. You can find examples of how the love exists between Christ and the church, but that is not really the overall meaning I would suggest in reference to the book. Some say that it's an example of God's love to the world. Again, those examples can be found, but that's not the overall meaning of the book. Some suggest that it's God's relationship between God's self and Israel. Could be possible. 
Some say it's a parable. I seriously doubt that because it does not house any of the particulars that compose of a parable. Some argue that it's an allegory, that it's really not a story or it's really not an actual event, but a story that might depict several kinds of events. That could be possible, but I don't think this is an allegory. I think it's a single story that's been composed of many different components that will give us insight into the relationship between one man, i.e., some argue Solomon, one woman, i.e., some argue the Shunammite maiden or a Shunammite woman, gives us insight into how this person felt about this individual in terms of his love for this person. Now, I, I would contend that there are several different couples throughout the Bible, but I would challenge you if you ever want to take a study and look at how couples lived in the Bible, you will find it very difficult to discover particulars about how they got along. You'll find different nuances about couples. For example, if you read the story about Adam and Eve, it's an interesting couple to explore, but almost immediately once you leave chapter 3 and go to chapter 4 of Genesis, you find that their parenting skills may be a bit challenging for their son rises up and kills his brother. Uh, you may find if you move to Abraham and Sarah, as you move to Genesis 12 and forward, you may find that there are some interesting things about they, what they do for the kingdom of God, but for whatever reason why, preachers and scholars don't talk about the other side of Abraham and Sarah, i.e. Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. No one talks about that, and I think it's because they believe it will detract from the essence of the Bible. Hey, it's a fact. That's his half-sister. To make it even more, it seems to run a course when you move from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob. Uh, folk like to talk about Jacob and how Jacob is such a wonderful biblical character because Jacob provides for us the 12 sons of Israel. What we don't like to talk about is that yes, Jacob gave us the 12 sons of Israel, but Jacob gave us the 12 sons of Israel by four different women. Two of them are sisters, Rachel and Leah. The other two are the handmaidens or the servants of the sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that Jacob nor Rachel are good examples to suggest how to understand how marriage worked, particularly Jacob, when you got 12 children, all sons, by four different women. And two of them are sisters. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, uh, Leah and Rachel are Jacob's uncle's daughters. Okay, so maybe you didn't catch that. Let me say that one more time for you. Leah and Rachel are the daughters of Laban, who is Jacob's father's brother. Okay, let me... And I mean, this is not the first... As you can see, you, you travel back from Jacob back to Isaac and from Isaac back to Abraham you see a pattern and the pattern is as I told you Sarah is actually Abraham's half sister and the pattern continues so I'm just trying to let you know often we preachers and scholars try to paint the picture of biblical characters as semi-perfect beings and we try to paint their family structures as the best to depict what it means to be a Bible family. I don't have to tell you anymore. You can kind of see, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
that the families we have in scripture are not necessarily the best examples to gain in terms of how to have a biblical family. But they help us realize the biblical principles that we can discover in these families. I'm not really sure if Jacob would, would be around today uh, having married two sisters and having uh, 12 sons. Well, he could have 12 sons by four different women. I just don't think the sister thing would go off very well in Western society. Uh, same thing with Abraham. He might be the father of many nations, but it might not be welcomed and it may be found, frowned upon when we discover that that's his half-sister. And that leads to other biblical problems when we look at how family develops, evolves in the Bible. And then we come to Solomon, again, who has 700 wives. I, I just want that to sink in for a moment. 700. Now I got one. And that's a journey. How do you keep up with 700? And 300 extras for his own pleasure. Now, I understand that these 700 wives were more like pawns on the chessboard uh, for political power maneuvering. I got that. But you have to kind of wonder sometimes. Take, take yourself out of yourself and get into the character of what we read in the text. Kind of wonder for a moment. What was the mindset of these 700 wives? I mean, I try to think about this thing. That's over two years. One night each wife. I mean, am I right? 365 days, 365 times two. What is that? Two, I mean, what is that? Uh, seven, how much is that? 7.30. So he has Susie on January 1. And Susie don't see him. Let, let's, let's just speak uh, modern terms. Susie on January 1, 2018. And he doesn't see Susie again until January 1, 2020. I mean, I don't know many wives, at least in this room, who would tolerate that kind of arrangement. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe y'all would tolerate that. Huh? No, that, Ms. Crocker, that's not going to happen. Nolan, you can't. Oh, Nolan's not here. Uh, you wouldn't let Nolan. That's not going to happen. Not in this lifetime. Not in this lifetime. So my point is, yet with all of those mistakes, uh, there is still something valuable to learn from the characters in Scripture, even though they're flawed. And thank goodness they are flawed because it helps me realize they're not here. But they are on level playing ground with me and I can see in their own life what it means to be a human being and to attempt to participate in the most critical practice of human existence and that is being in relationship with someone else. Now, we as humans, we are created not to be alone. Go back and read Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, rather, and you can see very clearly we were not meant to be alone. In fact, after God creates uh, the male, he, he realizes that it's not good for him to be alone, and God creates female. And as a result of that, now, there is this interaction or attraction uh, to someone opposite of you, in fact, it, it has to be in the case of goodness because when Adam wakes up out of divine anesthesia, he looks at Eve and says, this is good. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So, so we know we're really not meant to be alone. Now, being alone doesn't mean, uh, um, I'm sorry, being relational doesn't mean that I have to be married to someone. I want to make that point clear. 
Not everyone wants to get married. You feel me? You agree with me? I know that's a westernized concept that everybody should be married, but everybody may not be. In fact, I would contend everybody's not marriage material. Some people really can be in a relationship with someone else, but they may not can handle the commitment to seeing this one single person every single day for the rest of their natural life. And if you think that's not possible, just talk to some of your married friends. And they may tell you that they don't really enjoy seeing the other person every day. Like, I remember I had, uh, I was just eavesdropping. That's what I was doing, eavesdropping in the line. And the lady was telling the other lady that her husband has gone on a business trip. And she said, oh, so excited. I mean, I was, <laughs> I mean, you, if you could see her expression, she looked up to this and like, oh, I am so excited. He'll be gone for a whole week. Peace. But I, I just stood in line just... And, you know, I just try to turn, you know, because I want to make sure I can hear everything real good. And peace. You know, I just, I, I love him, but I just, I just need some peace. I mean, I just, I need to just get away from his voice. And he's nagging all the time. And just, I'm just, I just need that peace. And I, and I, I got home. I, I just thought I'd throw the question out. I said, hey, Bob, let me ask you a question. Um... If, uh, if I go out of town for the next week or so, you be all right? Uh, just hoping I would get a good response like, uh, uh, no, why are you going? Her response, oh, sure, that's fine, baby. Go enjoy yourself. <laughs> okay. And then I said, well, let me ask you this question. Does that mean then that you want me to do that because... You just want me out of the house, or have I gotten on your nerves? I was waiting for, oh, no, baby, I didn't mean anything like that. What did I get? A little bit of both. I mean, you know. <laughs> so I kind of thought, hmm. Yeah, I think I'm going to move on, Al. I think I'm going to move on from that one. So ask your married friends. And, and I think it's because, you know, just over time, you need a break. Uh, in fact, I try to encourage Bob, my wife, when she wants to go home and see her family, go ahead. By all means, go enjoy yourself. Woo, I'd be so happy. I need that break. That's what I'm saying. Love of the death, 35 years, love of the death. 35 years. But those of us who've been married for that long period of time, we're here to tell you, those of you who are younger, five years, 10 years, you're gonna need that break from time to time. It's gonna be a little helpful. Helps keep you sane. Thank you, thank you, Sister Carmen. Keep you sane. You don't have to admit it. I, I know you don't want to admit it because you want us to believe uh, that you never want that person out of your sight. And I, I, don't, I don't either. I don't want Barbara out of my sight until she gets on my nerves. When she gets on my nerves, then I want you out of my sight. And that's what she tells me when she get mad. Go on downstairs and play with the dog. Go somewhere. Just... Don't you, gotta, don't you gotta go to the library and find a book or something? Don't you got something to do for the church? Don't you gotta go visit somebody? I know somebody, you got to do something. Still love of the deaf though, love of the deaf. That's my baby, that's my girl, that's my boo, 35 years. But that distance creates a longing. Even after she leaves and be gone for a while, I start watching the clock because I want my baby to come back home quick. Now, once she come through the door, 
and I see she all in one piece, I'm out of there. Good. It's all done. But I need to see her. That's the kind of spirit you get out of the Song of Solomon. Even though you don't get the idea that he, he sort of needs a break from her, but he needs to be a part of her. He needs to see every dimension of his life with her because he loves her that much. She means that much to him that this composition of poems leave, leave us a couple of principles uh, that I just want to touch this morning. And I, I just want you to think about them because I believe they're so extremely important. And if I take historical conclusions that Solomon may very well be the writer, not all, but most of the Proverbs, I know at least when we come to this 15th chapter, he is once again providing good advice for us to consider as we listen to and consider how do we be so into someone else that we don't know what we're going to do if they leave our presence. So listen to what he says in Proverbs 15 and verse 31 and 32, which is really nothing more than a mere warning. And it's a warning to us to understand that it's extremely important that you learn from others who are in identical situations as you are and don't conclude that you already have the final word. But be willing to take some advice. Which is one reason why I believe that those who are older than us and those who have uh, the silver in their hair in the evening of their years, we would be wise to converse with them about much of life's living. Merely because although they may have exercised a different paradigm of existing, the same problems exist. People are not much different now than they were a hundred years ago. There may be a generational shift. We may address issues differently, but the reality is they're the same problems. Listen to what Solomon says in verse 31. He who listens, he who listens to life-giving reproof. Now, that's not a good word in the, in the English translation because that's not the word that shows up in the Hebrew. It really is life-giving advice or life-giving discipline, or life-giving correction. It carries the idea of straightening out a crooked stick. And when you've been married for a long period of time, or you've been in a relationship for a long period of time, and this is for those who've been probably dating for the same person for 10 years, and you kind of wonder, are we ever going to move beyond mere dating of 10 years? That stick that began as a linear presence is now bending. Because one of the participants is asking, which end of the pendulum are we going to move on? Together or in another direction? Now, there may be some who contend that, you know, I can date 10, 15, 20 years. Um, let me just suggest, can't tell you what to do, but converse with those who have been uh, married for a long period of time and who may have dated for a long period of time, that long dating journeys, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years I have a friend who's been dating the same person for 30 years and I, I even volunteered listen I pay for y'all get married I mean I'll marry you just because 30 years that's almost half of somebody's lifetime existence 
and you know, I want to go old school and I want to say what my grandmama used to tell me when I wouldn't get something done, but I know it won't be the right thing to say and I can't say it here in church, but I'll just give you a symbolic gesture. You're on the pot. You, you know where I'm going, don't you? Do something or move off. And then I look at him and I say, man, you know, that's kind of irresponsible on your behalf. 30 years? And then I look at her and go, you tolerated that for 30 years? And he going to string you along as long as you let him. As long as you let him. And as my grandmama said, you know, why buy the cow when you can get the milk free? That's a bad, that's an awful, awful, awful vernacular to use to describe that. But it's true in the sense of what it's trying to say. Why get or why marry to get what you can get without a commitment? That's what that means. And what this text says is, when you have someone trying to tell you, listen, that person needs to make a decision, and you need to make a decision. Here it is right here, verse 31. He who listens to life giving reproof, correction, direction, uh, discipline, will dwell among the wise. But look at verse 32. But he who neglects discipline despises himself. Uh, so when I converse with my friends, both of them tell me that they are disappointed in themselves that they've let this thing go this long. I says, well, the solution is easy. Just you need to make a decision. And that may be the hardest thing for us to do when we know that we're being strung along is to make a decision. The problem I have, although I love Peebo Bryson's song and the title, but the problem with the title is you have to be careful because when you become so into someone else, you craft your life around them thinking that you can't exist without them and you will do that at any cost. Even if it means being strung along without any kind of commitment. And here it is, when that happens, says verse 32, you'll despise yourself, but if you listen, second clause of verse 32, you'll get understanding. You will get understanding. Now, I want to shift to Song of Solomon chapter 1, although we won't get to much of it, but I want to suggest that whomever this Shunammite woman is, there is a strong suggestion that she may be well, or well, let me say this. Uh, there is a suggestion that Solomon now does not have 700 wives in the writing of this uh, particular poem or particular poetic gestures, mainly maybe 160 wives by now, which, which, which is still problematic. But this maiden may not be aware which I seriously doubt, uh, that he has 160 plus wives. But let's, let's look at the Shunammite woman just for a moment. What does this mean to her that this now king of Israel has this hunger, this taste, this attraction, this desire for her and nobody else? If she really is a handmaiden like some has suggested, that means that she's probably at the lower tier of social status. And that means that she doesn't have pretty much none to little economics. And here is this king who has this eye on her. Now, her... Her posture could be, of all the women in Israel, he's looking at me. Could be. 
And she could be saying, wow, do, do I carry that much? Am I that fine, attractive, where I've caught the eye of the king? Would she be, though, risking herself by being engaged in such a context where eventually she realized she's only one of many? And she can't make him commit to her because she has no political alliance to fulfill with him. And yet, that's not what we get out of the Song of Solomon. We, we get something. And, and as some scholars say, out of all of the women that Solomon had, somehow this one woman gets to his heart. Now, whether that's true or not, again, is debatable because, you know, uh, there is a historical suggestion that when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon and recognized he was not only a smart man, but, but he was a very attractive man, uh, history says that she eventually had a son by Solomon and he became the Ethiopian king, the first Ethiopian king. In fact, if you would take and read the Coptic history of the Coptic church, you realize that they direct their attention back to their first king who was believed to be the son of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. That could be true, I don't know, but, but that does not replace this kind of attraction that he seems to have for this Shunammite woman here in the text. So what I want to suggest, and then I'm done, is just a couple things to you I want you to think about. When we talk about being involved in a relationship with someone else, you know, what are we looking for? And, and what does it really mean uh, uh, to be involved with someone else? And I think Solomon is suggesting that one of the things, says Solomon, that I want to teach you in this text is it's important to understand what does it mean to be relational. What does it mean that I'm going to be in relation with someone else? So, so here's, here's a few notes you might want to write. And then if you write them down, think about them later and then come back and tell me about it. Because here's what I suggest. Being relational means living in relation with others. That's, that's a gimme, i.e. But in recognition of the interconnectedness to others. Have you ever seen some people who say that they are dating, but when you look at them, there is no connection at all? You can almost tell that there is no interconnection. Maybe a physical, oh, here's what I want to tell you. Maybe a physical attraction. But it's important that you understand, don't fall for the okey-doke of physicality first. And the person has nothing in terms of their internal being at all that's connected to you. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. You don't want to be involved with anybody who only make withdrawals from your life. Because eventually that bank is going to be drawn dry and then all they will get back is insufficient funds. But you want to be a part of someone, connected to someone, who is consistently depositing. Not withdrawing. Or let me, let me make a little bit of clarity there. If they are withdrawing, they are likewise depositing. Now, I can work with that. But someone who always withdraws and withdraws and and. You and I, at least I know, I know, I know plenty of people who just withdraw and who let people, persons that they are in relationship with just draw out of them until they draw them to the point where they are just empty and just totally exhausted. And then they take their exhaustion out on everyone around them except correcting the person whom you let keep withdrawing. So being relational, we're talking about somebody 
who we have an interconnection with, that means being engaged, being engaged, not the marital engaged, but being engaged, mean being into my life, being into me, means that they are genuinely concerned about me. They have a concern about what's going on with me. They are not concerned only about what's happening so they can see that they may still be able to withdraw from me, but they are concerned about me because they want to make sure that I am as healthy as I possibly can. If you got someone in your personal space, I'm a, let, let, let this sink in your mind for a moment. Jesus had 12 disciples. But only three were allowed into his close, intimate space. Peter, James, and John. And in that connectedness, if you would notice, each of them were engaged, concerned about Jesus' life, even when they were wrong. For example, Peter, when Jesus told Peter that he had to be uh, crucified, got to die, and Peter said, not so, Lord, ain't nobody bothering you. Uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. I'll fight to the death. And Jesus had to tell him, no, you, you will not. You'll actually betray me. Nope, not me. Everybody else will leave you, but I will be there. But at least there was a sense of genuine concern in his heart about Jesus. He was wrong because he knew, uh, he didn't really know that when he got to that moment that he would actually not be there, but Jesus saw something deeper than what was on the surface. And this is what I mean by do not get drawn into the physicality of a person. Just because they're attractive and they got pretty skin and got the muscles and she got all the figure, all the curves in the right space. Let's get beyond that. What's in the head and what's in the heart? And sisters nowadays want to know what's in the pocketbook. Oh, and might I add, what's your credit score? Yeah, you look good, man. You, you some kind of fine. But when I, if I find out that your credit score is 400, or I find out, check this out, that you driving an S500 still standing in your mama's basement, or I find out that you ain't got a single dollar in your bank account, you look good, but you can't do nothing for me. The physicality. Brother, she might be fine as I don't know what. Blow your mind. But her mind could be way over there in the North Pole somewhere. Her vision of life is limited to the immediate spot. You got to get past the physicality and let's see how engaged and concerned they are about me how grounded they are what do they believe nowadays you got to ask these questions what you believe who are you and please hear me clearly when I say this I'm saying this only as a point of reference but you have to ask who are you and what are you I mean, you may be, become very close and friendly uh, with another individual. If you're a female, you may come close to another friend, female, only to find out that she may be in a same-sex orientation. That might blow your mind. You never knew it. You might need to find that out before you become a possible candidate for her attraction. Same as the male. You have to ask these questions now. And what do you believe about life? What do you believe about God? Do you have any spirituality in you? And if you do, tell me, what does your spirituality mean? 
And if you want to work with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you don't want to be unequally yoked. You might want to ask those questions. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the word of God? Do you believe in church? Tell me what you believe in. Uh, This person, you may be a Christian. This person is a Muslim. How are you going to handle that? And you might want to get that taken care of early because if you decide to get involved with this person and you bring this person home to meet your parents or the rest of your family and all of them are Christians and you bring home someone of opposite faith, that might be a problem for your family. Now, the bottom line is that'll be your choice. But then you run the risk of being alienated by your family or being uh, angered with the family and, and they may not treat you the same nor will they even treat your future spouse the same is that what you want to handle is that what you want to be involved in you need to ask what their grounding is oh and you might want to ask do you have any children male or female because you may be a person who prepared for an already family and if it's a sister, I'm almost here to tell you, uh, that comes with the package. I mean, a sister's going to tell you, if you can't take my children, then I guess you don't want me. And brothers, you got to ask yourself the question, am, am, am I willing to learn about this woman enough to understand that if I come to love her like this, can I take her children? I'm here to tell you, if you love her, then you, you're going to love them children because that's a part of her. And if the roles are reversed, so, so you got to ask the question, if he got kids, now, here's the other dimension, the kids' parents, do I want to deal with baby mama and baby daddy drama? May not be drama. There may be a good understanding where everyone has an understanding as to what their responsibility is and I will roll for the child. Great, if it works out, great. And it can if both sides would sit down and iron out that difference. It will work. But you got to ask them questions. Not just being, uh, being engaged, concerned, grounded, but they got to be secured because some people become involved with you because in you they think they can find their security in life. And by thinking they can find their security, that means that they figure uh, the more they get of you, the more they feel secure and happy about themselves. And they will make you pay the price of their own security. You might want to find out then what's the motive of being involved with me. Why do you want, it's okay to ask, why do you want to date me? Why do I want to date you? What's the purpose? What's my motive? Because if it's economic security or if it's some other security, wrong motive. Because money will pay the bills. Money will get you some things. Money can buy you some happiness. But it will not buy you all happiness it will not buy you genuine love and if someone is only with you for what you can give them you might want to reevaluate that relationship are they encouraging talking about being relational are they encouraging You might not want to be with someone who doesn't encourage you in whatever you're doing, who doesn't have your back, who doesn't hold you up, who doesn't have positive good things to say about you. Now, there is something about encouragement uh, that needs to fit. And by that I mean I'm not talking about encouraging you when you're doing something wrong, like involving yourself in destructive behavior. That's That's not encouragement. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're trying to do something to build your life, to develop your life, to expand your life, to grow your life. You're trying to do something to prepare yourself for the future, to prepare for your children, your family. That's what I'm talking about. Do they support you in that effort? Because if their attention is to draw all of your efforts away from you and on them, you might want to rethink that relationship. 
because that person in simplistic terms is selfish. And that person is telling you that what you are attempting to do is second priority to me. And you might want to reevaluate that because if that person does that, that means they are subtracting and not adding to you. Are they generous? Are they generous? Are they willing to give me not just, not just money, although that's, that's nice, but time. Not just time, but resources, wisdom. Are they willing to give to me what I need to help me grow as a human being and then as another person in this relationship? That's what we're going to find out of the Song of Solomon, being relational. And here's my last point. Are they nurturing? Are they going to feed me what I need to grow? And can I feed them? Can I provide to them? Can I nurture them that they too will grow in the space that they are in? Once again, you don't want anybody who's constantly withdrawing, not putting back in. You want someone who's nurturing you, constantly nurturing you, maybe withdrawing, but at the same time, making deposits in your life. Are they reassuring me? Are they encouraging me to push ahead when everything in me tells me to stop? Now, when I talk about relation, watch this. There's a couple of things you got to be careful for, about. I want to be in with a person, but I don't want someone smothering me. By smothering, I mean that person generally exercises feelings of inadequacy, and feelings of neediness which fuels their smothering demand for love. Here's what they say. I need you in order to live. When you start hearing those kind of words, that could be very dangerous. Or, in the words of Whitney Houston, I, I have nothing, nothing, nothing if I don't have you. That could be dangerous because that person is putting all their eggs in your basket and if you accidentally drop that basket and damage one egg, you could damage them totally. So that may sound good that they need you, uh, that they can't live without you, and that they don't want to be without you, but when your self-worth and your identity is rooted in another person, that makes an unhealthy relationship. Because if your self-worth and identity is not found in the person of Christ who is perfect but found in the person, the one to whom you're involved with, you're going to find their imperfection is going to make you even more imperfect. And that's dangerous. Now, some people say, I want to be smothered in love. Only to an extent. Because what happens is that person who is smothering began to believe that they own you. And when a person starts to think that they own you, you got trouble on your hands. Not just a person who smothers, but you may want to be careful that the person you involve, distanter, a distanter. Now this is what I mean. That's not a real word. I made it up. A distanter. But a distanter is someone who is guarded and emotionally isolated. Now, here's what I mean. They want closeness, but they are afraid to get close to you or to let you in their heart. But they don't want to be without you. But they don't want to let you in. It's almost like uh, you get to a point in the relationship and now you want to go to the next point, but they don't want to go to the next point because they are afraid of whatever may happen and they'd rather love you at a distance that's the reason why we say long distance romance don't work because there's not enough time to nurture because to nurture you have to see a person you have to touch a person you have to be in contact with them and they are the kind of persons who are who are elusive 
and they'll sort of tell you in their actions, not too close, but come anyway, but just don't get too close. They're slippery. It's almost like a bar of soap. When you think you got it, and it slips right out of your hand. They are emotionally reserved, and they are non-committal. That means that they are not willing to risk being loved by you, nor are they willing to risk giving you their all love. We're going to find that out in the Song of Solomon. Here's the final one. I talked about a controller. That person's insecure and fear controlling of them. So they think, so they enjoy making over your life by saying, I know the best for you. So let me make over your life, not mine. Let me make your life over because I know what you need best. And by doing that, they are highly critical of everything that you do and all of your imperfections. They point out everything that's wrong with you. Whatever decisions you make, why did you do that? Why would you do that? Why not do it this way? Follow my direction. I know the better way to do it. Their main problem is to love someone is difficult where they are. They don't want to love a person where they are. They want to love a person where they think they should be. And when you get involved with people in terms of being in a relationship, you have to learn to love people where they are until they grow to where they desire or you desire them to be. And that's a process. A process that's costly and a process that's worth the journey. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this, love is not critical and it's not unaccept unaccepting in order to dominate but it suffers long and it does not act unbecomingly and it does not seek its own gratification. So now, what I'm hoping to do is leave you with the idea of thinking about those you may be involved with, those you may have relationships with. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, it could be just friendships. I want you to start asking the questions, what, what, what actually do I get from them? And what actually do I give to them? And I got one or two choices. Either we revise and revamp what we are doing, or we may need to go in our separate directions because you're actually wasting each other's time. If you're involved in a relationship with someone, you know, you're thinking about being romantically involved, you might wanna ask yourself those questions because maybe you need to think about, are, are we actually going to where we need to go or are we just passing time? And if we passing time, I'd rather pass time with someone I wanna be with. And if you're in a marital relationship and you're struggling at this, you might want to ask yourself the question, what are we doing in this relationship? Because if we're not contributing and depositing and growing each other, then we might need to sit back and make an assessment. And then if we're not willing to make change, then we might have to think about some alternatives because we're wasting each other's time. This story in the Song of Solomon depicts someone who must have ironed out all of those differences and decided that this very person to whom they are involved is it. And I think it eventually goes to a marital relationship or as some argued is already such, could be true. but how do we get there? Unfortunately, what you're not going to see in this story is struggle. You're not going to see much of disappointment. Uh, and this is some of the reality that we find in the Bible stories. You're not going to see the reality of what it means to, to be engaged in a marital relationship that's not all blissful. But it has its days of struggle. It's an up and down journey. And that's what I meant by when I said earlier that uh, when I was eavesdropping to this lady at the, at the grocery line who was just so happy that her husband was gone for a week, uh, sometimes that's a reality. 
That's where two people need that break to refresh themselves. And then I think it also creates a need for them to recognize, I really do love and miss this person in my presence. Y'all mighty quiet on me this morning, I guess. I guess, it's, I guess I'm hitting a toe. Am I stepping on a toe and pushing over in a coin somewhere? I don't mean to hit the coin, but... This is a good series. It, it, it will help us relationally, and at the end, I'm going to tie to how it works for us as a church body, being in relation to each other. Uh, but right now, I want us to see the importance of being tied to one another in terms of relationship and being married, because here it is. It, it's, it's a story that can teach you how to get to that place that you will see the silver and the golden years of matrimony, 25 and 50. And I don't know, what's beyond, what's beyond golden? Diamond? Is it diamond 75? I don't know anybody who's been 100. I don't know what's at 100. Platinum? Is it platinum? I don't know. But to get to golden is, is a journey. No, to get to silver. No, to get to year number five. I tell all the couples that I counsel, your first and second year is going to be your greatest challenge. It's going to be a challenge because the adjustment is going to be crazy and things are going to happen. Uh, particularly if you've never lived together before, you, you're going to find some stuff out about this person that you just did not, you didn't know by not living with them. You didn't know that they had bad smelling feet. You didn't know that they take pick up their clothes off the floor. You there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And you find it out once you marry somebody. You don't know that they snore. You don't know that they don't take a bath every day. You don't find that out till you live in the same house. You don't know they don't change their underwear and their undergarments every day. You find that out once you live with them. You don't know wherever they take their clothes off at, that's exactly where they stay until somebody picks them up. You don't know that until you live with them. Or you don't know that when they have a bad day at work, they don't have the skills to separate work from home, so they bring it home, and when they come through the door, you expecting one thing, and you find Chucky coming through the door. You, you don't know that until you live with them. And for men, sisters, you don't know that he hides a lot of his problems. He hides a lot of his physical ailments. He don't tell anybody anything until something goes wrong and his whole attitude changes and his mindset changes and he becomes distant. You don't find that out until you sleep beside this person every single night. Then you find out. And you might ask yourself the question, did I marry? First two years are tough. Then the next two years is an adjustment because now once you learned about them, now you got to ask yourself the question, do I want to endure this for another year or two? That's why I said if you make it to year five, you, 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 you pretty much on your way. And those of us who've been married for 30 plus years, we try not to remember the earlier years. We, we try to blank that out of mind. It don't go nowhere though, but we try to blank it out though. Uh, but we only try to share that with people close to us, children. And that's simply because we don't want them to walk in the same footsteps that we did. I told my son about all my bad habits when I first married his mom, all my bad stuff. Don't do what I did. Don't do it. Abby won't be with you two minutes. Don't do it. She'd be gone in two minutes. Don't do it. Don't do it. And it's worse for you because old habits are hard to break. They are. 
Even though your mama married the best man in the world she could have married, but still. I was a hot mess when we first got married. I was only 20 years old. What do you expect? That's another thing I tell people. Don't get married too early. You need to wait a while. I know you all hungry and your hormones kicking in and he all fine and sexy and she all fine. Don't let that override your common sense. You need to wait a while and live. Live your life a little bit. Explore. Realize there's a big world out there before you make a commitment to somebody because once you do that, your world's going to shrink. But look, go places. Take a trip. That's why I love students or people who are going to take international trips. Go out of the country. Go somewhere else. Go to another culture. Just do something where you can expand your horizon before you say, I do. Because once you say, I do, life shifts. Next thing is children. And once you get married, it's so happily, I mean, it's just exciting that when you come home, ain't nobody there but just your spouse. But once you got children, you have now made an 18-year commitment. You lock for the next 18 years. So that boss, before you got married, before you got pregnant, that boss you had that would make you mad and you'd give him or her your piece of your mind, now that you got children, you have to think about that thing twice because you got a mouth at home to feed now and you just can't walk away from a job and go to another job. You got to think about that now. See, your whole life changes. That's why I say you got to be careful who you decide to be involved with. This is more for young people. Those of us who are involved now, we in it. That's it. We, we, we done now. It's, uh, it's, it's done. I mean, that's it. But those of you who are young, you got to know who you're being involved with. Because it's easy to get in marriage, difficult to get out. That's why Johnny Taylor said, it's cheaper to keep her. Wonder why? You can, get, you can get married for, I think a license is $25, $50, I don't remember. $25, $50, something like that. But to get out, a divorce, not only the expense of a possible lawyer, unless it's an uncontested divorce, but the division of property. If you acquire property together, you got to divide that property. See what I'm saying? That's why it's important to know who you are in relationship with. And I didn't talk about it because I got to let you go. I didn't talk about, you got to be careful about the baggage that people bring to the relationship. Because all their bad relations, they bring right to this one. And it's going to come on you. Lord, thank you for our time together in the word this morning. Bless, bless now uh, that this word from the Son.